Welcome to Unconventional Thinkers. My name is Kawan Saluja. On this episode, we talk with Lucia Capicchione, pioneer in expressive arts therapy and author of several books, including Recovery of Your Inner Child and Power of Your Other Hand. We talk to her about creative journaling and how it saved her life, non-dominant handwriting and drawing, how to deal with the critical parent, creativity, and so much more. I really hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation with Lucia. First off, I mean, it really is an honor uh, to talk to you. Um, there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk to you about, um, like ranging from visioning and your career path. But I wanted to start with creative journaling and what it is and what it isn't. Um, well, I would say that the distinctive characteristics of creative journaling are the combination of drawing and writing. Um, I brought my art therapy background into the final method that I created, uh, although I became an art therapist because I discovered this method, so it kind of works back and forth. And then the other uh, characteristic, uh, besides the fact that I present journal prompts for people to do, uh, is the use of the non-dominant hand for writing and drawing. And my definition of that is the hand that you don't normally write with. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> And I, I I like to talk also like what I thought was really interesting was you started as a professional artist, right? Right. And then when you started uh, into this kind of work, that wasn't necessarily like professional art looking work. Is that accurate? Right. Not at all. I did have another career in between and that was in child development. I was a Head Start director and trained in the Montessori method. So I had a lot of human development background as well. And uh, so, no, I when I started uh, drawing in a journal, uh, what I later defined as a journal, uh, I was not making art with a capital A by any means. No. <laughs> One of the things that struck me, though, uh, regarding this technique is uh, I've done a lot of written journaling, like Julia Cameron's, uh, you know, morning pages or my t in my case, it's any time of the day pages. But uh, okay. what do you say to people? I guess a couple of questions. What do you say to people? who uh, say, I can't draw, number one. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that is like the well, first question. Well, I can't question. draw and I can't write. That's the other thing I hear. And uh, do I have to do this every day? And the answer to the third question is no. You don't have to do it every day, even though the word journal implies daily. Uh, I don't do journaling every day. I do journal work when I feel like it. And sometimes I might do it three or four times a day, sometimes not at all. So um, I don't require that. Um, as far as the art goes, I like to tell people is that um, anybody can draw. If you can write, you can draw. Because you're using the same elements, you know, straight lines, curved lines, circles, dots. It's the same vocabulary, really. People think they can't draw because they've been taught that. They were either made fun of when they drew as children or they compared their work to somebody else's or to Rembrandt or, you know, something impossible. And so they came away with the conclusion that they did not have any talent. And in my work, I'm not asking people to have any special talent or any art training because they're doing art for themselves. There's two kinds of art. There's art from the outside in and there's art from the inside out. And this is art from the inside out. It's about what's inside of you that wants to come out in any way. Scribbles, shapes, abstract designs, or just, uh, you know, very simple stick figures. 
So that's really what I'm asking people to do. Um, is But is this the type of work that requires an art therapist? I mean, I, you've, read, you've written several books. Um, yeah, 20 books, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was doing research and it was like only 14, like not so long ago. So Right. Like... Well, I've written a lot of uh, workbooks for children and teenagers and uh, uh, various specialized, um, you know, groups that have not gotten into commercial publication. We've done limited editions. You know, it doesn't require an art therapist. However, what I always tell people in the books is that if some really deeply traumatic memories or experiences come up while you're doing this work, by all means, go get a professional therapist to work with. Uh, this isn't a substitute for therapy. It can be um, definitely complementary to therapy, and a lot of therapists recommend my books. A lot of clients bring my books to their therapists and say, you know, I'd like to do this in addition to the therapy. And uh, most of the time, uh, what I'm told is that therapists say, yes, by all means, you know, this is fine. Do it on your own in between sessions. So it works very well. But it can be done without therapy, depending on the individual's uh, mental health and their commitment to it. What, um, you know, how would you explain the concept of an inner child uh, to someone, you know, who's never heard of that term and how that also relates to your work with the non-dominant hand? Right. Well, it's a very major part of my work because the non-dominant hand is very awkward in most cases, and it makes people feel very childlike because their non-dominant hand didn't learn to write. And so they really regress back to the period of time in which they did learn to write, usually around four or five years old, something like that. And so the inner child, in my definition, is very simple. It's our bodily sensation. The somatic experiencing is the inner child, as far as I'm concerned, because now coming at it from a child development background, the first seven years is when we are learning everything physically. We have, you know, babies put things in their mouths, they have to tear it apart, they've got to touch it, feel it, uh, get physically connected to it. So we feel emotionally when we're uh, focusing on physical sensations very much the way we did as children. Then the other definition uh, of the inner child is that it's our emotional self. So when we're having strong emotions, we're in, in many ways in a much earlier stage of development that never goes away. The body doesn't go away. The emotions don't go away. But they were characteristic of earlier experiences and stages of development. Then the other two, which are more advanced, are our creative self. When we're being uh, when we're improvising and being spontaneous uh, and being in the moment, mindfulness is a term that's used for this. We're in our inner child because children are very much in the moment. You know, they're they're looking at the color of this post-it and they're looking at the light coming in the window and they're able to experience oh the physical without analyzing it or even without talking about it because their left brains aren't as developed. So they're very much into the present sensory moment of experience. And that when we go there, we're very much in our inner child state. It's a very innocent state. It's not very verbal. And then the other aspect of the inner child is our spiritually experiencing self. Hmm. Not about dogma. It's not about beliefs. It's not about anything learned. It's about the sense of something larger than ourselves 
the uh, ecstatic experience we might have of watching a sunset. Uh, the the uh, kinds of experiences that are um, transcendental. And that to me is the inner child state because children have that experience of, of something larger, something spiritual without having words to attach to it. But they do experience it. Wow. I mean, this has uh, totally given me a different take on the, the word of uh, mindfulness, the way you gave, gave it. Um, I wanted to know how you stumbled upon it. I know that there was uh, some health things and like how things were before. And also what were some of the early on things that you heard back from your inner child, whether it was you or people you work with, where you're like, wow, that's amazing here. (laughs) Well, actually I like to tell people in my lectures and, you know, talks at book signings and in my training class that this work saved my life. And I'm not being overly dramatic in saying that. I was very ill in the summer of 1973 with um, a condition that doctors were unable to adequately diagnose. I found that out after a short period of time, a matter of weeks, where they kept giving me medication and I was having side effects. And so then I'd be sent to another specialist. More medication, more side effects. I realized after a while that... Um, I was in uh, pretty dangerous territory here. (laughs) And the straw that broke the camel's back was a phone call I got from the HMO that I belonged to from the pharmacy. And they said, oh, that medicine we just gave you, don't take it. It's somebody else's prescription. We got them mixed up. And now I have been going through all of this, what I call, you know, medical bungling for several weeks. And I was getting sicker and sicker. And that did it. Um, my, my inner child really reacted with anger. I just really got really angry and fell. And I, I hung up the phone because I'd already started having side effects because I'd already started taking the medication. And um, I was having dizziness and lightheadedness and nausea and, you know, the whole work. So I went to the medicine chest and took out all the medications and I threw them out. I just emptied the, took the lids off and just threw them out in the trash. And I went back to bed because I was feeling very ill. And I said to myself, I don't know what I'm going to do, but that's not it. That is not working for me. So I was following my gut instinct, really. I was like, forget about these people's um, names, their titles, their um, status in society, what you've been told to believe about the medical profession. Forget that. It's not working. So something else has to happen. So I went back to bed and I looked at my journal, which was on the bedstand next to my bed. And I realized that that had made me feel better. I had just started morphing my sketch pads into uh, personal journals where I was drawing my feelings out, scribbling, drawing my dreams out at night writing my dreams, writing my feelings out, and I would feel better. And I thought, you know what? Uh, I'm going to just keep doing that for now. And I did. And I shared it with a friend, and that led me into some therapy where my therapist was doing uh, neo-Reikian. Some of it was body work. Uh, She was doing transactional analysis, introduced me to the whole idea of inner family and gestalt therapy. 
And I took my journals and showed them to her in between sessions. And she said, oh, you're really onto something. This artwork is really powerful. The writing is very strong. You've got to keep doing this. And I said, yeah, I, I, I know I do. And long story short, within a matter of three months of therapy with her, um, I my health was back. Okay. And I had already been doing journaling for a couple months. So over a period of maybe about four months, I went from really, really sick, still on meds, to getting rid of the meds, doing the journaling, going into therapy, and I had my health back. Now, the, the thing is that I had an incurable disease, and I didn't find out what it was until several years later. I went to a, a very, uh, turned out to be a very famous man who developed um, a method called um, sclerology, where he would read the whites of the eyes, very similar to iridology, which is the ancient Chinese method of diagnosis. And he looked in my eyes and he said, oh, what happened when you were 35? That was the year that I got sick. Yeah. He said, did you come unglued? And I looked at him and I said, yes, that's exactly what happened in every way. How did you know that? And he said, well, he said, did you know what you had? I said, no. And uh, he said, well, you had a collagen disease. And collagen is the glue that holds everything together. Wow. And so you were coming unglued physically, literally coming unglued. And he said, and you, you were coming unglued emotionally too, right? I said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, all right, now the next question I have for you is how did you heal yourself? Because you don't have it anymore. He said, this is like looking at the rings on a tree. I can tell that you had it, but you don't have it now. But you did something. He says, because there's no cure for it. What did you do? I said, well, I kept a journal. And I drew my feelings out, and I wrote them out. And he said, that was very smart. That saved your life. He said, if you had continuing take, and I told him about taking medication and throwing it away. He said, if you had continued taking medication, your immune system would have been completely devastated, and you would have not survived. That's, I mean, that's really powerful. Um, yeah. So when I say this saved my life, I'm serious about it. I really it saved my life. No, I mean, yeah. I was reading in the power of the other hand, and I, uh, I, I, but you also, you, you also kind of made your own method and were well ahead of your time. It's, I'd never had come across this inner child concept until I read Alice Miller's drama, The Gifted Child, and then Bradshaw's work, which was so powerful. But then I was like, how come this isn't more mainstream? I was mm -hmm. confused because, and how come not everyone, like I love Alice Miller. She's a really hard person to read. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. I, and, uh, well, I originated the first comprehensive um, method of therapy using inner child work. When I say comprehensive, I mean it's beyond just introducing somebody to transactional analysis and the concept of a parent and a child. Because what I did was I brought my child development background to the table, and I started to just spontaneously realize there is an inner family, okay, and the inner, the healthy inner family is the inner child, which I described earlier, but also two healthy inner parents. And they are adults. So in transactional analysis, they'd be called the adult. But they're two very different energies. One of them is self-nurturing. 
And it's typified by compassion and understanding and patience with the inner child. And the other aspect is very impersonal. It's the protective parent. And the protective parent's job is to set boundaries okay, with the outer world as well as the inner world so that the child can get nurtured. Because if there are no boundaries, if there's no container for that, the nurturing can't happen because the person is likely to be abused or you know, pressured or impinged upon by the outer world. So we have to have both, and they're very different. They're as different as the right brain from the left brain, really. And so the, um, the nurturing parent part of us is more tuned into the physical, the intuitive, and it's more connected to the right brain. The left brain is, is more uh, typical being a verbal side and less emotional. It's more typical um, in terms of its function of what the protective parent has to do. And so I started to do these dialogues in my journal with these different parents. And I realized I was reparenting myself. And I, that started in 1973 when I was discovering the journal. So a lot of these other methods like Bradshaw's came after mine, but I was the one that originated this whole concept of the inner family in detail and going into dialogues with these aspects. And um, so that's, that's how it started. And where does the, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure the exact terminology is, whether it's the inner critic or the critical parent or that everybody seems to have and how, how do you or how do people manage it um because a couple of things i was struck by was you followed your instinct and one thing i liked i think i heard gabor mate or someone like that say trauma is when you don't follow your instinct right you know and how did you um like how does one well, deal with that because um well my first my first resonance with my instinct was when i threw all the medication away yeah no i was really I was my physical my my physical self saying my body doesn't like that stuff. It's not working. Okay. And that was very instinctual. It was very in the moment and it was very um, quick. I mean, it just happened really fast. It was just, it, it suddenly dawned on me, got to get rid of that. Okay. So I'm not saying yes to that anymore. I don't care what anybody tells me about it. I'm not doing it. And then I had to go uh, follow my instinct to, okay, well, what does feel good? And again, looking at my journal on the nightstand, I was like, that feels good. When I draw in there, when I write in there, I feel good. And that's the kind of thing you'd ask a child, you know, mm -hmm. what doesn't feel good, what does feel good. And so let's do what feels good. So that's what I did. It was just like, you know, it makes so much sense. <laughs> Common sense. <laughs> yeah. And like, I think, I think the question we ask the adult is what feels practical, which is so far away or what feels conformist which is so yeah. far away from like what right. feels good. But, but then as I mentioned um, in uh, both books, Recovery of Inner Child and um, also in uh, The Power of Your Other Hand, uh, when I started, um, you know, dialoguing with the inner child, uh, my critic came jumping out and uh, I had to really deal with that. You know, the critic immediately, when I started um, using my non-dominant hand and laying my creative inner child out about things she wanted to do, like she wanted to have an art exhibit of, of uh, work that I had done in the past, the critic came in immediately with the dominant hand, left brain. Because, okay? you know, the left brain controls the right hand and 
and the yeah. right brain comes to life. Sure. So here I am with my non-dominant hand. I'm opening up my right brain. I'm getting into my limbic system where the emotions are stored. They're all pouring out. And then, of course, the critic uh, grabs the pen and says, uh, oh, you can't do that. You've got to go out and get a job. You've been sick too long, and you've got to be practical, just what you said. Um, and you've got to get out and make some income and be a grown-up and blah, 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 blah. And my inner child just grabbed the pen back and answered back and got sassy and bratty and mouthy. And, um, again, staying in the instinct of, uh, you know, no, that critical voice doesn't feel good. I don't like what it's saying, and I'm not going to put up with it. And so I answered back. And I got real assertive and really bratty. And um, then these two had a battle with each other, back and forth. Two hands, one the other, one and then the other. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. And that first dialogue, which happened on in November, right around the time of my birthday, at the end of that year that I was sick, was just a huge breakthrough for me. I felt so much better afterwards. But I also realized I had just discovered the uh, answer, the antidote to the toxicity of self-criticism, which is what I then became... Uh, I became, uh, started calling the critical parent, I call it the third parent. And the third parent is an introject. It came in from outside and mm -hmm. it needs to go back outside. Okay. So when wow. I teach people to use this method, I say, you've got to write what the critic says in the second person. Never use the word I when you're writing down self-critical uh, phrases or sentences, because if you use the word I, you identify with it, and you think that's who I am, and that's what I think. And it's not the real you. It's criticism that originally came in from outside, and then you made it your own, and you put it into words that work for you now, but it all came from outside. You weren't born with it. And so you need to put it back outside. So if you put it in the second person, you know, you this, you that, then you can answer back to it. Now you've got a dialogue between this external toxic voice that you learned and the real you, the inner child who is not putting up with that. It's abuse. Not going to put it up with it anymore. That's it. I've read a lot. I've never come across that labeling that critic as you. Um, yeah. Because that's when I will get defensive if someone asks me, you know, if someone talks to me the way I talk to myself. Right. And then then I will be I will be very authentic. <laughs> well, when people are doing this in my workshops, I have them write out what the critic says with the, in the you form, you this, you that. And then I have them silently read it back to themselves, imagining that somebody was just standing in front of them saying those things to them. And how would it feel if somebody else were standing there saying those things to you? And that helps them get in touch with how they really feel. Because otherwise, you know what? They agree with it. They go, well, the critic is right. Yeah. Nobody is going to publish this book I'm writing. Uh, nobody is going to take this seriously. Uh, I'm just going to fail and get rejected and blah, 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 blah. And they identify with the critic, and so they believe it. So I have to get them into the mode of just what you said. No, this is an external voice that you learned Put it back out, and then how does it feel? See, that's the root of trauma. Somebody comes and takes your your life force away 
by telling you something about yourself that's a lie or doing something to you that makes you feel that there's something wrong with you. And so you have to get angry first. That's what the Me Too movement's all about. You know, the Me Too movement is about, we got to get really pissed first. The women's movement that I was part of and one of the leaders in in the 1970s was about, we got to get really pissed right now. Because you know what? If we don't, and we go along being ladylike and polite all the time like we used to do, we're just going to get re-traumatized. And you know what? We're not going to do that anymore. So the first step, and it's not the only step, but it's the first step, is you've got to get angry at that voice and realize that it's the emperor with no clothes. You know? It, it doesn't exist. It's a fiction. That that view of you is a fiction. you got to get rid of it. But you got to get mad at it first. Otherwise, there's no motivation to get it out of your head. Yeah, because when you first told me about it, I was like, wow. But then when you said the part about where you have the person, you know, get up and say it to you, like I start my physiology changed. And I was just like, I was really, uh, I mean, I was, I was kind of angry a little bit, you know? Oh, yeah. In my training program, I Not have to act this out in, with four people. One person is the critic of the other person. And the person who's playing the role of the critic actually has the client's journal in their hand and reads it to them, reads the, what the critic said, okay? And so here's the inner child of the client now listening to that. But then we have a person playing the nurturing parent on one side and the, uh, the protective parent on the other. And they're whispering in the client's ear, you know that's a pile of, you know what? That isn't true. You know that's all lies. You know, don't you're not going to believe that. And then finally, the person who is allowing their inner child to come out gets really angry at the critic and tells them off in no uncertain terms. And when they do, every time, the critic ends up being speechless because the energy of the assertion is so strong that this, you know, blabbering critic over there who's just going on and on with all this negativity just is suddenly stopped. My favorite one was um, a young woman who said to the critic, um, this is Jane's answering machine. She's not taking any more messages from you, so don't waste your time. <laughs> that was it. And everybody laughed, and the critic was was speechless. I mean, what can you say to that, right? <laughs> Oh my so now the critic never goes away. I want to just uh, make that very clear. It's part of the human condition. It's the, um, you know, in every drama, in every fairy tale, there's always the wicked witch or there's the giant or somebody that is making life miserable for the child, right? And so that's why children understand those fairy tales very deeply. Because that's what's going on psychologically in their lives. These big people, these witches and dragons and all this, are making life miserable for them by getting in the way of what they want to do. And so they understand it. And that's an archetypal inner story for all of us. Our inner child has so much creativity and life force, and it just wants to express itself, but it's getting blocked all the time. Right. What what about what about just children who um you know just un like I think Alice Miller's big concept was about un, you know unpress unprocessed childhood trauma is as the root of so many problems and I believe that too. How sure. does that you know like just kind of grown up in like you know 
I think Bradshaw said 95% of families are dysfunctional. The other 5% are lying. Right. And, um, exactly. And, well, you know, and, the thing, and the thing is, I don't even think of it as dysfunctional anymore. It's called the human condition. Yes. That's great. Okay. We so, came onto this planet to so learn good. some lessons. It wasn't going to be easy. We knew that when we came in, as far as I'm concerned. And so um, if we stop pathologizing everything and realize that this is the human condition. So there's nothing wrong with us because we had a, quote, dysfunctional family. Welcome to the human race. If you had a, a family that wasn't struggling with humanity, then you were pretty rare. There are very, very few people who can say they have parents who understand children, can nurture them, they don't criticize them. I mean, those are very rare. And God bless you, you know, great. But most of us didn't have that. You know, we had mothers who slapped us around and fathers who uh, were addicted to something or weren't around or whatever, you know. And so welcome to the human race. So let's not pathologize it. Let's just see it for what it is and then go, okay, now how am I going to deal with the trauma that I grew up with? And, of course, the answer for me, even before I discovered this, was the arts. I, I was taking piano lessons at age eight. I was in plays. I was putting on plays in the garage when I was a kid. I was a, a very good writer. I was doing artwork on my own. I was just very excited about the arts. And that's how I survived childhood. Yeah. You know? And I, I was raised in Hollywood. My father was working on the golden musicals at MGM in the 40s when I was growing up. So I saw all this talent. Now, those people were doing the same thing. A lot of creative people have told me, people who are professional creatives, have told me, Oh, if it hadn't been for singing or dancing or art, I never would have survived. Okay. So you don't have to be neurotic to be an artist. But if you are struggling with trauma, art is an incredibly healing tool. And if you can grab onto that early enough, that can pull you through. And it can be a, a, a door opening into another world that allows you to survive. Yeah, I, that's beautiful. And I, I just, um, you know, I, I don't think everyone believes this, but one of my favorite books is War of the Art by Stephen Pressfield. And his really thing is creativity is not being creative is what drives people to misery. And he, like Alice Miller, uses some very extreme examples, you yeah. know, that might trigger people, but yeah. makes very convincing case. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's why in the educational work I've done as a Head Start director in 1965, right after the Watts riots, okay, Compton, Watts, South Central L.A., L.A., East L.A., 1965, it was a war zone, okay? And I was a young Montessori trainee, and I got a job being a supervisor of a Head Start program for 300 kids, right after the riots. Don't ask me how that happened because I kept saying, no, 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 I'm not qualified. But long story short, they hired me. I brought a Montessori program in, but what I was dealing with was hundreds of children who were totally traumatized. Right. They had seen whole blocks blown up and burned down. They had seen the police come in. You know, these are black and Hispanic kids mostly. And the, the violence and the brutality was unbelievable. The National Guard occupied the city 
okay? And these kids were totally traumatized. And so what I found was if we had them do artwork right away, as soon as they came into the classroom, they could go scribble and pound on clay. I was doing art therapy and didn't even know what it was, and there was no art therapy association in those days. And, yeah, wow. Um, and there's, uh, I don't, I feel like sometimes there's a discouragement even for kids to, you know, not play and, and you know, and lose the arts. And I think that's, that's really yeah. scary, actually, because. Yeah. You know. yeah, I've done workshops for uh, parents who have brought children with them. And um, this was in Texas not long ago. And I asked them all to scribble to music. These are all adults and there are a few children there. And this little girl didn't know what the word scribble meant. She was about eight years old, seven, eight years old. She had never scribbled. And, of course, during the break, I took her mother out in the hallway, and I said, please, please, get your daughter some markers and crayons and let her scribble. You saw how she enjoyed it here. She needs to do that. Because the mother was saying that the daughter was very critical of herself. And I said, well, that's because she's never had an opportunity to let her inner child out. And she's still a child. But she needs to express that. So the arts are incredibly important for children, traumatized or not, because they need to get all these feelings inside out. And that's how they can do it. Um, yeah. And you've had a like, I know you're a voracious reader, so I'm curious of, of some of your books that you like. But first, I wanted to start with Carl Jung and how how what yeah. influence and if you could talk about it, he's someone I came across later in life. And I was like, how come I just heard of this Freud guy? Because I really like Jung and I like Jungian and I just like him a lot. The unlived well, life. Jung, Jung was never in, and still isn't fully understood because he had such a deeply spiritual yes. foundation. And, um, quote, science has a hard time with that. And the psychiatric uh, community has had a hard time with that. And that's why he and Freud broke. Because Jung was uh, really into spirituality and Eastern religions and, you know, all of that stuff. In his, in his journal, he even had Sanskrit, <laughs> you know, and he was very, uh, he had this incredible inner guide that he called Philemon. And his paintings of that look very Indian from India. And he's got uh, somebody in a child's pose in one of his paintings in front of a flame which is like, you know, uh, doing pranam in front of the guru. And I have, a, I have an Indian uh, meditation master, a guru. So when I was in, living in an ashram and I was reading, this was after I got well, but when I was reading um, sections of his uh, red book, his journal, and I saw these paintings of this person in a, in a child's pose in front of a flame, I go, this guy got Shaktipat initiation somehow. That's he's that's what he's painted here. Right. And I didn't wow. know that when I came under his influence while I was getting my master's in art therapy because I was reading a book about him uh, in his work when I was ill. That and Anaïsen's diary. Something about a very personal story of a woman's life and how she changed doing journaling and then reading oh, his his work and he's talking about the collective unconscious and using art for healing. And he used art in his own journal and with his clients. See, I think he was the first art therapist. I, I didn't know that. That, yeah. that's, that's fascinating. I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't know that. Um, 
what 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 uh, what other people influence you uh, or do influence you to this day, or what other like what are some of your f- favorite books or life changing books? Well, the the big influences have been people that I've actually studied with, like Hal and Sigrid Stone, have been a huge influence on me. Oh wow! And they developed something called voice dialogue. And I had been doing these dialogues in the journal, and in the mid-80s, I had students saying to me, you know, this journaling you're doing is a lot like voice dialogue, Hal Stone's work. And I said, well, I thought he was a union analyst. I met him in L.A., you know, peripherally at events. But I didn't really know that he was doing something beyond that at this point. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, when he left the Center for Healing Arts, he started developing this thing called Voice Dialogue. And they told me there was a book out about it. So I got the book. And in Voice Dialogue, and I use this method in my um, whole body of work now, uh, you ta- you actually, the, the therapist talks to the different subpersonalities, like the inner child and the protective parent and the nurturing parent, or the inner artist or the inner business person or the inner adventurer or whatever. And they get up and they they have their own place in the room. They have their own tone of voice, their own body language, their own belief system, their own needs. And the therapist talks to that part. And in this way, we get to tap into the collective unconscious and find those archetypes in ourselves and find out where they are out of balance. So if our primary self is all business, and we're just going 24 hours a day working, working, working. That is a setup for getting sick because the opposite of that would be a part that is very much in touch with an inner child that would like to walk on the beach and watch the sunset, maybe paint, play with clay, stuff like that, the opposite. And if we get too far over in this you know, workaholic zone, what happens then is the body, which is the inner child, goes on strike. And that's what happened when I got sick. I was in this workaholic zone all the time, and my body said, you know what? We're stopping now. We can't do that anymore. You won't listen to us, all of us inner children, the playful child, the creative child, the tired child, the vulnerable child, the angry child. You won't listen to us, so we're going on strike. And the way it does that is it gets sick. Wow. Then you go to bed. And you can't do the 24-hour-a-day workaholism routine. It doesn't work. You can't do it. So a way to avoid that is to be listening to that inner child while you're also being an adult and figure out how to balance it out. You know, it's like people going on vacation. Americans are famous for this. I was in Italy years ago. I've been there many times. And I was sitting in the lounge at this hotel, and the the, uh, bartender realized that I spoke Italian, and he said to me, could you answer a question? He says, what's with these Americans? They come here on vacation, and they're always exhausted. And when they tell me what they did during the day, I think I would be a basket case. I'd be totally exhausted. Why are they doing this? They went to three museums in one day, and then they went here, and they went there, and the day before that, and they've been in five countries in eight days, and They're exhausted. He says, what are they doing? I said, well, Americans tend to be workaholics, and they do that when they're on vacation. He said, oh, that's it. I said, yeah, yeah. They're trying to do too much and accomplish too much and get their money's worth, and they're not really 
enjoying it because they're they're on this schedule and they've got this agenda, you know, and it's all goal oriented. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's what I see. That's what, and I don't understand it. I said, no, you're Italian. You wouldn't understand it because the Italian culture is, you know, manja manja, eat, have fun, enjoy the senses, you know, slow down. Sit at a cafe and have coffee for a couple of hours. Take two hours for lunch. Come on. Life is more important than all that other stuff. That is, I mean, that, that, that's, um, yeah, that's right. And then how do you get that balance? And then could you also talk about what role projection plays and what that can tell? Exactly. Well, the journaling helps to keep the balance because if I find that I'm going overboard with one sub personality, then what I can do is I can dialogue with one of the subpersonalities in me that's getting left out. So I might ask with my dominant hand, um, you know, I want to hear from uh, one of the parts here that is feeling left out. And then I put, of course, I'm going to put the pen in the non-dominant hand because that's the disowned hand. And this is the disowned self. And I'm going to find out, oh, this one wants to go traveling. We haven't been on a trip for a long time. And she loves adventure. And we haven't had a chance to do that. And so that's why I'm feeling cranky and tired and all that in my everyday life. Because there's a part of me that's calling out and saying, hey, what about me? I got left out. You know, or what about the inner child who's just tired and wants to take a nap? Right. You know, there's nothing wrong with taking a nap. No, I mean, it wasn't until two months ago that I first discovered that rest can be one of the best gifts you can give yourself. You know, it's like shocking to me. It's a shocking discovery. I've taken a nap every day for the last four days because I've been very busy getting ready for this training program, organizing things, talking to people, communicating. And I found myself getting tired. So what I've done is I've taken at least an hour nap every afternoon the last few days. And that's what's making it possible for me to do the work, stay sharp. I'm 81 years old. I have not slowed down. No. But I've learned to balance my life, you know, so that I have the energy to do what I want to do. But I don't overdo it. I can stop and go, you know what? I'm tired now. I'm getting cranky. The signs that the inner child is being ignored is fatigue, uh, crankiness, irritability. Uh, you feel like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? The fun has gone out of it. You know, what's it all about? Why, why am I doing this? Um, and you start getting that feeling of malaise inside. It's just kind of, you know, or boredom, you know, with what you're doing. So, oh, same old, same old routine. Uh, you know, yeah. When yeah. you're feeling that, the inner child's gone. <laughs> Well, I thought it was very powerful when I read in uh, what you were talking about, where a lot of your clients career-wise are looking, and I've made this mistake, where it's looking out there for the kind of job that they have to make themselves become. Right. Um, right. And I you know, I work with a lot of women, and I say, eh, forget the glass ceiling. That's somebody else's world. Create your own ceiling. Right. And like, Start, start your own business. Become an entrepreneur. 
I, I have been most of my life. I only had a couple of full-time jobs that lasted for a very short time, a year and a half at the most. Yeah. What, um, and you also, like, I love your career progression and how you've been, it's been really like, just kind of go with the flow. Were you always that way or was that what changed after you were 35? You know, just well, the, I, I think change. I was always that way because I was not a good student. Okay. I wasn't a little obedient student in that parochial school. Uh, I didn't like school. I thought it was incredibly abusive and abrasive. Um, overcrowded classrooms with nuns, with rulers. And um, I hated it. I loved kindergarten. See, if I hadn't had kindergarten, I probably wouldn't have known the difference. But I went to a public school kindergarten, and we danced, and we played with blocks, and we painted, and worked with clay, and it was nothing but fun. I loved it. Then I get to first grade, and I go, what is this? We've got to sit in these desks, yeah. and this nun is yelling at us all day, yeah. and she's making us memorize stuff. What is this all about? What What am I doing here? And that didn't make sense to me. It never did. It still doesn't. And so I, I just uh, I got through it, but what I had to do is find things that I liked doing and then do them. And most of it was after school or in the summertime putting on plays in the summertime or taking piano lessons after school or drawing in a sketchbook after school. It was all extracurricular or putting on plays at school, but it was extracurricular. Yeah. Just wait till that, till school is over so I can do what I do. Yeah, exactly. Now I did love to read. So I learned to read and I read very well and I was a very good writer right from the start. Why? Because I was expressing myself. I could write a composition in class, hand it in at the end of class, and the teacher would say, oh, no, you're supposed to finish that for homework. I'd go, well, I'm done. And she'd read it and say, yeah, you are done. And, and be amazed. Because I wasn't editing anything. I was just like, you know, right from my heart, writing it all out, and it was done. I didn't have to think about it with my left brain. It was just pouring out because I just had that ability. And I knew it. And I just had confidence in that. So I, you know, I just would stand by what I knew. No, this is it. It's done. I finished it. <laughs> what What are your favorite books? I'm curious. What My favorite books? Yeah. Or three to five books that you like a lot. Oh, my favorite book is um, Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria Rilke. I love that book. That's my desert island book. If I could take one book with me plus a blank journal, that would be it. I just love that book. It's uh, It's got amazingly uh, profound little quotes that you've read everywhere because it gets quoted all the time. And um, they're just, it's an incredible book, and I never get tired of it. I've read it many, many times. Uh, I love um, reading books about artists and their artwork and their process and how they did it and the struggles they had and you know, uh, George O'Keefe and Paul Clay and Van Gogh. I went to his uh, museum in Amsterdam this spring again. It's just unbelievable. Anne Frank, I love her book, her diary, of course. And um, Anais diaries were very – diaries are very profound for me because of my own journey. And uh, I was reading Anais diaries that had just – they were still coming out in volumes at the time that I was sick and I, uh, somebody gave me one of them and I read it and it's like, well, Oh, I got to read more of this. I think she gave me volume two. So then I got volume one and then three and eventually, you know, they all came out. 
Um, but I love her her work. And of course, she was a novelist, but her novels were seeded in her journal. And if you read her novels, you can see the characters in her life and how they morphed into characters in the novels. Yeah. What would you say to your uh, 18-year-old self? My 18-year-old self, I'd say you made the right choice because my father wanted me to be an English major in college because he could have gotten me into the Screenwriters Union, which is a big deal. And I always got A's in English. So that's the practical grown-up thing to do, right? And we're talking about what college you're going to go to and over the breakfast table. And I said, I... Um, I want to major in art and I want to go to Immaculate Heart and study with this nun that I just read about in these national magazines that she's on the cover of. And my dad fortunately said, okay. You know, he said, I, I, I thought you might want to be an English major. And he, but he never pushed it. He didn't force it because he knew me well enough to know that once I made my mind up, I was going to go for it. So, yeah. Yeah. So I made the right choice. I was not quite, 18 at the time, but close. <laughs> um, you have a great uh, website. Where can people find your work, uh, your, your books? What is the best place to, to find? Well, I think the, the website, luciac, L-U-C-I-A-C dot com is the best place. A great big thank you to Lucia. I love what she said about screwing the glass ceiling. Create your own ceiling. <laughs> In a lot of ways, that is what creativity is all about also love the method that she uses to externalize the inner critic. If you like the show, please, please, please leave a review on iTunes. It will help to grow the show. Until next time, this is Kawan Saluja reminding you to always, always, always be learning. <laughs>